I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Miriam, great to see you again. So, uh, what have you been doing this week? I think something exciting with the badge program. Yes, it's been a great time with the badge program. We just had a panel, our fifth session with lawyers, some of the brilliant lawyers who lead in the AI space, uh, who advise our executive on what they see in terms of litigation and liability. So, you know, our bias as lawyers, uh, (laughs) we love that session. Uh, Really looking forward to our final session coming up much too soon. And that's going to be the AI policy horizon, which, as you well know, is such an interesting discussion now because it's gone from theoretical to tangible regulation in our midst between the EEOC DOJ guidance uh, and the NIST framework well underway as well as the EU AI regulations that are forthcoming. Yes, it's it's wonderful to see, um, especially having sort of been at the coalface of trying to get people to do something for a long time. It's it's very rewarding to see 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 all this activity, yeah. but not just in the regulatory context, you know, in soft governance as well. And so it's going to be a joy to talk to Richard Benjamins, who's really been leading figure in the European a responsible AI community and uh, has done some extraordinary work establishing uh, responsible AI in his company, Telefonica. So, um, Really keen to dive into talking to him today. Same here. He will, I know, based on his books and articles, be such a helpful speaker for our audience to understand not just the big picture items, which we often talk about, but his operationalizing of these theoretical concepts that promote, build, and ensure responsible, trustworthy AI. But before we turn to him, I want to hear about your week. I know you have a lot going on. You're between huge conferences. Yes, absolutely. So we we had um, our annual meeting in Davos, um, which was very interesting in that um, executives were very obviously perplexed and worried about the geopolitical situation and what that has in store for the economy. And so there was a, a lot of conversation about that. There was some conversation around artificial intelligence and metaverse and some of the cutting edge technologies like quantum, which is an area I I lead some work on quantum governance. In fact, we actually published the world's first framework for um, ethical use of quantum uh, Mm. a couple of months back. And so we, we just bounced off that and we're about to go into the global technology governance retreat which we hold in san francisco and there it'll be all about tech so uh the tech that we use today like ai and and blockchain and the tech of the future as well so very much looking forward to that Mm telling you about it after the retreat. Well, we will look forward to hearing about it. I'll look forward to joining you there and participating live in person in these conversations and then sharing uh, some feedback with our listeners. So, so much coming up. And right now, I can't wait to dive into this conversation with Dr. Richard Benjamins. This week, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Richard Benjamins, 
Named among 100 Most Influential People in Data-Driven Business by Data IQ 100 in 2018. Richard is Chief AI and Data Strategist at Telefonica and founder of its Big Data for Social Good department. He is also co-founder and vice president of the Observatory for Social and Ethical Impact of AI. Previously, he was Group Chief Data Officer at AXA. Richard is an external expert to the European Parliament's AI Observatory and a member of the Board of Directors of Environmental Nonprofit, CDP, focusing on how data and AI can help in fighting climate change. He has a PhD in cognitive science and held positions at universities across the globe, Madrid, Amsterdam, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Paris, South France, and the Spanish Artificial Intelligence Research Institute in Barcelona. He has published over 100 scientific articles and is an author of books on this topic, The Myth of the Algorithm, Tales and Truths of Artificial Intelligence, and a Data-Driven Company. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. We clearly have so much to discuss, given your broad range of experience and interests in AI. Uh, so we'd like to start with learning how you started on this journey. How did you first become interested in AI and AI for societal good in particular? Well, uh, my first interest in AI actually comes from a long time ago when I read a book of Douglas Hofstetter called Gödel Escherbach that related AI with music and maths. It's a long time ago, and that made me study artificial intelligence. My first contact with uh, the responsible use of AI was, uh, let's say, five years ago, uh, when I saw that AI was becoming more and more important, even in uh, uh, my own company, Telefonica. Uh, and there were lots of things about uh, problems around AI. So my natural thought was, if we are bold on AI, we cannot be not bold on the social impact of this uh, technology. Um, and that together with not only doing good AI, but also using AI for good, yeah, uh, is also that I started in uh, around 2016. Super, thank you very much. And um, I love that, um, the way that you put that. So uh, your role as Chief AI and Data Strategist at Telefonica, um, can you tell us a little bit about what that entails and whether you've seen other multinational companies adopting similar roles? And do you think that we will see more and more companies start to um, employ Chief AI and Data Strategists in the future? Yes, yes. Uh, happy to elaborate on that. So I think we, we should not uh, uh, mix up uh, a name of a role yeah, with the content of in relation to ethics. So I'm the, the chief AI and data strategist, which means that I'm looking forward. I'm looking in the future what is going to be relevant for companies yeah, uh, and, and businesses in the foreseeable future. Yeah? And that's why today... Uh, I focus on uh, responsible AI, so the responsible use of AI, and also on AI for social purposes, AI for good. Yeah? There are a few other things in, the, in, the, uh, in this role I also work on. One is about uh, data sharing uh, between companies and between uh, companies and governments, uh, and the, the other way around for uh, improvements in the world. It can be on the economic side, on the business side, uh, but of course my interest is mostly on the social side. Yeah? 
for instance, we did a lot of work with sharing our anonymized aggregated mobility data with different governments around the world, including the European Commission, to fight against COVID. Because COVID was all about mobility of people. And so our big data told a lot about, together with big data of other companies in the world. Uh, so that's the other thing that I'm working on. And then the last thing I'm working up also from a more future perspective is the role of Spanish and AI. Because the, the, the digital uh, Spanish is, the, is, is spoken by 600 million people uh, in 21 countries are native speakers. Uh, but the digital world of Spanish is completely dominated by your companies. Uh, and, and they have English first and then the other languages second or third or fourth. Uh, uh, and that leads to all kinds of uh, consequences that are uh, not very good because those companies have commercial incentives uh, to provide their services and they have no linguistic uh, incentives. So what happens is that the Spanish language becoming poorer and poorer because uh, they use AI to correct uh, grammars. We all see it in Microsoft Word and in in, in Google. So it's nothing to do with responsible. It's a very interesting story. That's why why I tell it. And if we write something in Spanish uh, and it's not recognized, it has a a red line. And what we did studies, and uh, about 10% of the red lines in Microsoft in in, in Gmail or in... in, 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 uh, in uh, Google Docs, actually are correct words. Yeah? But it means that people start, stop using those words because they think they're wrong. And that means that the system of Google and, and Microsoft learn from the AI that people write. And so you have a loop that the language becomes poorer and poorer. Yeah? So we have a project that tries to mitigate that where we work with the Royal Spanish Academy. That's the one organization worldwide that is the regulator of Spanish, accepted in all Spanish-speaking countries. And so we we have a project where we talk to Google and Microsoft and Twitter and Facebook, where they have to use those uh, official resources for language, dictionaries, and, and those kinds of things, instead of any dictionary that is out there and that is best suited for whatever other reason. Yeah? So uh, that's the uh, that's the third thing that I'm 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 working on, and it has a lot of to do with uh, responsible AI as well, because there's a lot of bias, especially gender bias in in language and in professions. Yeah. So uh, there is a connection to responsible use, because we all know the problem that uh, automatic translation had that all nurses are female and all doctors are male. And of course, you have to uh, do something about it. And I know there's a lot of research going on, but it's still not yet solved. You raise so many interesting points, not only societal bias, but actual language bias that is um, inherent in the way different language is structured, as well as which language is preferred uh, based on which AI programs we're using, who's building it. so many layers of good that you are doing by both focusing on the problem and uh, finding solutions to try and achieve better outcomes. Uh, I assume this is part of your work, but would love to know more about your being the founder of Telefonica's Big Data for Social Good department. I'd love to know what inspired you to create that, what you hope to achieve with that in particular, and what kind of projects do you work on? 
Okay, so the, the uh, I, I've been in, let's say, more commercial roles, operational roles uh, until 2016. And then what we already had was a research area where, where people working on how can we use uh, uh, big data, mobile big data to improve the world. So it's about, we already did work on, uh, you know, research work on pandemic, uh, the swine flu uh, propagation in Mexico and what happens with uh infections if governments close down schools or shopping malls yeah um we had a um, there was an earthquake in mexico and we plotted in the minute before during and the minute after the earthquake we plotted the mobile and uh, activity in the antennas and at the moment of the earthquake you see a lot of lighting coming up of people communicating i'm in trouble or i'm fine i'm well and so that was 2012 2011 and at that point we realized there is value beyond our own operation in, in our data. Yeah? And so we had this research project, uh, research people who published papers about it, but then they just published it. Uh, and that's that there, there it ended. So what I thought, well, why, why wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be nice if we try to take the research results and bring them really to society? Because instead of saying that you can do nice things, you can actually do them and save people's life or improve people's life. Yeah? So that was the idea I had in 2016. I prepared the presentation. I went to all the company, to all the different departments. Yes, we like it. Yes, we like it. Yes, we like it. So I presented it and they said, no, we have no budget. And then I went back and then the, suddenly there was a big reorganization uh, moving around hundreds of people and said, okay, this is the moment to try again. And I tried and then I got it approved. So we set up a very small area and small department that took Telefonica's anonymized aggregated data on mobility footfall. And we tried to apply that to societal problems. Uh, we did uh, natural disasters, earthquake, landslides, uh, floodings, uh, where you see if such a disaster happens. Of course, it's a very big earthquake. It's all over the news. But if it's a small one, it can still affect hundreds of families but nobody knows about it. So if you have data, you can actually work with governments or with humanitarian organizations so they better understand where, where is the help for need. Yeah? Uh, we did the same with pandemics. Uh, we also did forced immigration. So people, especially in our footprint in South America, lots of people from Venezuela have fled to uh, uh, other countries, but the other countries, they at the border, they just take, check the passport, but they don't register anything. So. The local governments where the people go had no idea where those uh, refugees were, whether they access to had children had access to schools or to healthcare or whatever. So they asked us to do a study, uh, anonymized and aggregated data, never uh, personal data, to see where uh, whether we could tell them. Well, if you want to speak to them to understand how to work, you better go to those areas and less to those areas. Yeah? So you use. You use this big data as a kind of proxy, as a reflection of reality. It's not the reality. Of course, there are errors, uh, but you can consider it as a kind of a Plato's cave, yeah? uh, where you look always at the reflection of reality and you interpret that, that reflection. Um, so we did, uh, lately we did COVID. So that was the reason why we wanted to do that. And then to work with uh, other companies. We worked with the World Bank, we worked with uh, UNICEF, we worked with FAO. Uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization. We work with the, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, so lots of things. Yeah. Now that was very, very positive and and and, and interesting. The, the real problem is that uh, everybody is interested 
in those things. They like to see the possibility of the research, but if you really want to implement it on a daily basis, then there is no funding. Or at least uh, we have not been able uh, to found it. Yeah? So you can demonstrate that, um, you can demonstrate with this technology, you can uh, save people's life or you can improve the management of crisis and natural disasters. But to really make it happen on the ground, uh, there is, uh, it's a kind of empty space. It's not, companies want to do, companies like Telefonica like to do those things because they help and it's good for their reputation. But of course, it's a philanthropical thing. They can't really scale that up uh, for free because they have a business to run. Uh, humanitarian organizations usually ask money from large companies instead of uh, paying large companies' company for solving these problems. And governments oftentimes, uh, well, they're very complex and uh, very difficult to get money. So the only way now today, I think, is either going to philanthropists who have lots of money and who could be doing that. But really, I think it has to change. Yeah? This needs to become sustainable from a financial perspective, not for reputational reasons, but really for solving problems. Gosh, there's so much in that to unpack um, not least, as you say, uh, companies truly um, buying into their CSR responsibilities. But um, equally, it can't just be companies. So um, it's something, obviously, at the World Economic Forum that I deal with a lot as well. Um, and uh, we have lots of companies and governments who come together and want to give their time and their expertise. But again, you come across, well, how do we actually scale that and make it happen across the world? So um, moving on, you are a prolific author, several books, one of which was published last year. What inspired you to write a data-driven company? And who's the intended audience? And what can your readers learn from the book? Okay, so um, as I said in the beginning, I, I, I'm in data and AI since, since many years, yeah, because I did even my, my, my graduation and my PhD in artificial intelligence when nobody even knew what it was. Um, and uh, when this became a hype, yeah, you, you, you saw so many people start to talk about it uh, with very little information. Um, so that's, that was one of the reasons that I wrote my, my first book, which is called The Myth of the Algorithm. Yeah? It tries to distinguish between what is true and what is science, yeah? what is uh, untrue, what is science fiction, and what is opinion. Because there's a lot of opinion in AI, artificial intelligence, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter to have opinions, but if you tell this to people, they should know what is an opinion and, and, and what is true and not. So it was about educating people yeah, about, uh, about this important technology uh, because also, uh, let's say, citizens and consumers have to take responsibility for uh, using this technology. They need to know, otherwise they're completely lost. Yeah? Now, the book that you mentioned, a data-driven company, is because I worked for, I think, 10 or 15 years in, uh, in working with data from the early beginning when data was considered an exhaust as an, of an operation. It just generates data and you use it for a few things. But and, and from that, going through data as the most powerful uh, fuel of 
taking decisions in a different way and not based on expertise and intuition, but also based on facts. Uh, and even lately, more recently, using also all, all kinds of machine learning, artificial intelligence technique on top of the data, that is a whole uh, a lot of a journey. Yeah? And companies that think, uh, okay, I'm going to start with AI, I'm going to put $10 million uh, into this, it doesn't work. So it's a journey. So what I write in this book is uh, the journey in different phases and the decisions that company have to take or are taking without knowing if they move forward on the journey. Yeah? And I distillated them in 21 lessons, uh, which are real things. Yeah? And the, the book is infused with experiences, of real experience that you normally don't read because I checked what, what is read about for business about AI and data. And it's mostly about explaining this to business people or use cases, but it's never about, it's a process and what things do you have to, uh, to think about. It's about organizationally, how do you handle this? So where do you put, do you need a chief data officer? Yes or no. If you need it, you put it right at the top or you put it minus two of the CEO. If you put it minus two, do you put it in IT, in strategy, in marketing uh, or whatever? So these are all decisions that company take. Uh, and usually they don't take them explicitly, but they, those decisions have consequences and they are very different if you are in the beginning of your journey or if you are halfway of the journey. So what I try to uh, highlight in all those chapters is what are the decision, what is the decision to take? Those are the, the, the chapter uh, titles. And then what are the options available? What are the pros and cons of each option? And what is the best way to do depending on the phase you are in? So it's about organization. It's about business and finance. It's about technology, about people. And more recently, I also included a chapter on responsibility. Now, there is a lot of examples of the first four because it has already happening for 10 years. But on the last part, there are not so many examples. On So responsibility for me means uh, at this stage, first, uh, what are the social and ethical impacts of this kind of technology? So you have to understand those impacts uh, if you want to use it at scale. Uh, secondly, what can you do about it? And that's the whole thing that you are also working on. So responsible AI, uh, guidelines, uh, regulation comes in. And the last part is you can even do more. Yeah? You can not only be responsible in the use of AI, because you can also use it to, to do uh, good, yeah? to do social, uh, social projects. So that's the last part of the, uh, of the chapter. And uh, I must say it's, uh, it's going quite well. Uh, it will be translated into Spanish and also into Chinese, which means it will be available to 4 billion people on the, on the planet. Well, I'm so glad to hear that because clearly you're breaking down important business decisions and liability that they all need to be aware of. Uh, so many people think of AI as a competitive advantage or a must do in this AI world, this AI economy. And, and so helpful that you're breaking down what some of those considerations are from your experience, some of the wrong and right ways to go about it and 
particularly, we're all grateful that you've included uh, that there needs to be a focus on responsible AI. And I, I really appreciate that you address these uh, huge issues um, with use cases. And I am particularly grateful that when you've talked about bias and explainability uh, elsewhere, you talk about them as being solvable. Uh, so this is something we really want to hear more about. If you could tell us how you define these problems of bias and explainability in your book and otherwise, and, and how do you think that people should go about solving for them? Okay. Um, so first, first about bias. Yeah? So bias, the problem with bias is that it may lead to non-desired or even illegal discrimination. Yeah? That's the main issue uh, around bias. And, and as we all know, bias comes from many different things, but from a tactical perspective, uh, it comes because the data that you use for machine learning uh, might not be representative uh, for uh, certain target audiences. For instance, if you want to do something about public school abandonment, and so uh, pupils that leave the school and you want to predict that and you do the study on a certain neighborhood and then you extrapolate to the whole city, of course, then you will create problems yeah? because your, your, your data was not representative and that may create a bias and a discrimination of some uh, uh, some um, vulnerable uh, groups. But it's also about uh, the use of sensitive data, data about uh, political preference or sexual preferences or uh, even sometimes it's about gender yeah? or about ethnic origin. So you cannot discriminate. That's not allowed to discriminate against this. Uh, and as long as you have the data, so this sensible uh, variable in your data set, so which of course what you have to do is take it out, train your algorithm, and then you test against this variable to see if it is discriminating or not. If it's discriminating, you need to do something, uh, even though you're not using explicitly this variable. Uh, the problem is if you don't have sensitive variables, sometimes there are variables that correlate very highly with sensitive variables, and uh, like postal code and ethical race in some countries. Uh, and so you need to be aware of that. Yeah? Uh, and, and all those kinds of things, uh, there are tools that can help you uh, find those things, but you need to want to find them. Yeah? You need to be alert. And that's the mindset that is what I call responsible AI, uh, responsible AI by design. Yeah? And actually I call it the use of responsible AI by design because it's not the AI in itself that is responsible. It's the use. Uh, it's the use of it. So that is uh, that is about bias. And of course there are many more things, yeah? Uh, like in, in, in language, bias is infused. So what can you do about that? Yeah? Well, there are, what you can do if you have a lot of female uh, nurses, you can artificially inject a lot of male nurses in your data set just artificially, just to balance that out. Yeah? Uh, so there are things you can do for some languages easier or not. Um, and, and the real problem is with bias is that sometimes you have no idea about your sensitive variables, but you still might discriminate. You know, this was what, what happened to Facebook in the publicity of, of housing, yeah? where it turned out that it offered certain uh, advertisements of housing, not to certain groups of people. Uh, not because it had uh, data about the people and it, it just filtered them out because there was some coloration, uh, correlation between them. And actually Facebook got, uh, well, they were investigated by uh, the, the regulator 
And uh, they said, okay, we can do that, but then we actually need much more information of the people. We can, with their data, they can actually deduce whether somebody has a political preference or whether somebody is of a particular ethnical origin. They can do that. It's not uh, always correct, but they have enough data to extrapolate and to deduce that kind of information. But then you have, okay, what's more important, privacy or, uh, or, or, or equality? Yeah? So you have all kinds of uh, balance and uh, trade-offs between uh, those kinds of things which, which are very present in, in the use of artificial intelligence. And I think what it, this will be solvable. At some point in time, we will solve the problem of how to find out whether data sets are biased, whether they have sensitive variables or not. It's, it's just too early to do it. But I think it's a technical problem. Apart from the whole other thing that uh, you need a diverse team to build systems. And, and so th those are more soft uh, things that also are very important. So that is on the bias side. Uh, on the explainability side, I think the importance is not so much that all algorithms are explainable always, but it depends on the use. So if you do a, a, a medical diagnosis, then of course a hospital and a doctor need to understand why there is a diagnosis, especially if it's of a serious disease that, imp that implies a lot of difficult treatments or it implies letting a person go that might have a disease. So a doctor needs to understand, otherwise he is not able to take uh, a decision. But then if you look, uh, if you receive a recommendation on Spotify or Netflix to watch a certain movie, well, uh, who cares if you don't understand how that works? Yeah? And then again, uh, if, if they got it wrong, the impact on people is not so high. Yeah? So an algorithm needs to be explainable when it has a certain impact on people's life or even on society as a whole. Yeah? And, and then it doesn't have to be explainable for everybody. It needs to be explainable to the people uh, that are involved. And, uh, so, because many companies complain, no, we cannot open up our algorithms because it's our IP and it's our uh, protected uh, patents and it's our core business or it's a secret. But you, you don't, it doesn't mean to be explainable that you have to publish it as open source to the whole world. Yeah? Maybe you have to open it only for regulators and the rest of the people don't know about it. Or maybe you need to have a certain explanation for professionals like doctors or lawyers or judges who use this. Yeah? And another thing is whether you have to explain to final customers or citizens. So these are all kinds of different requirements and, and usually everything is put on the same, uh, on the same hope. No? For, for, from, from a technical perspective, explainability of deep learning algorithms is hard, but there are techniques yeah, that either open them up by building something on the side. Uh, and so if you have a black box here and you observe a lot of inputs and a lot of outputs, you can build a standard, uh, a stand, a standard machine learning algorithm that is white box that takes all those inputs and generates all the outputs. And then you know, you have an explanation how it works. Yeah? You never know whether this is correspond exactly to what's happening in the black box, but you do know with the same outputs, I get the same, uh, with the same inputs, I get the same outputs. Yeah? So that might solve for, for a little part that. So there is, this is even open sourced, so everybody can use it. Uh, it might not be so easy, but it is there. And then you have also models that try to really break open uh, a black box. Yeah? And that's another methodology that looks of each individual uh, connections 
related to certain input attributes, what is the influence of this attribute on the output? Yeah? You can think about if you, in image, you see a lot of examples with image recognition. Uh, if you recognize a cat or a face, you can ask the system, tell me uh, what pixels do you think, yeah? not in those words, but what pixels do you think correspond to a cat? Why do you think this is a cat? And sometimes it highlights the cat, but sometimes it highlights up different things yeah? that has nothing to do with the cat, but it happened to be in all the, in the training data that that thing happened. Yeah? A famous example is the distinction between wolves and dogs, where it turned out that when they asked the system, why do you think this is a wolf? Uh, it was because there was snow in the background. Right? So accidentally, all the pictures of wolves had snow and all the, pic the pictures of dogs don't have snow. And still, it was very good at discriminating between the two. But of course, we know that it's not correct. Yeah? So th there are some techniques to open up black boxes. And unless those techniques in the coming years are becoming uh, more and more sophisticated and more and more complex, uh, I think with what we have today in, the, in some years from now, it will be able to understand those things, e even though it might be hard. Super, thank you. And I love the story about the wolves. I guess they didn't have any huskies in there. Um, so uh, moving on to what it's like being in a multinational company like Telefonica, where you've got lots of different regulatory regimes and companies and people from all over the world because you operate all over the world. And we know that you're on record as having stated there's a need for more collaboration between government, academia, and business in this space. Um, what would that look like? And what would you like to see as a col that collaboration accomplish? And have you seen any best practices from um, the work that you do with agencies and people around the world that we might want to follow? Or is it just a bit of a desert? Uh, well, let's say the first question, uh, of course, we operate in, in many different uh, geographies with different regulations, uh, but we tend to have one, uh, let's say, uh, company uh, governance, which is the same in all, uh, in, in, in all of our footprint, uh, which means that, if, for instance, if in the European Commission, the, the AI Act uh, is uh, adopted then probably we will also uh, apply it in uh, in the other countries of our footprint. Of course, uh, there is a roadmap, yeah? So there is an urgency when the regulation comes into play and the others will come uh, will come later. Yeah? Uh, we did it with uh, privacy, with GDPR. Uh, you can't today, you cannot handle five or six uh, or ten different privacy policies uh, across different companies because it's completely a nightmare. Of course, if you are like 10 independent companies who are completely on their own, then you might, but still, it's not good. It's no, I think it's not good practice from a, for a multinational company. And, and we do have a corporate center uh, where we try to coordinate uh, that, uh, everything uh, between. Yeah? Now, con concerning the collaboration um, for, for regulations, I think it's very important to have uh, open conversations uh, between governments and companies on, uh, on, on what needs to be regulated, how does it need to be regulated. Um, but I understand and I'm very aware that it's very tough yeah, 
because if you go uh, if you go to any regulation, especially the regulation the regulation on AI Act, you have kind of standard positions. Yeah? Uh, companies say no, this regulation is too strict; it will kill our business. All the academics and the government will say this regulation is too lax; it's not strict enough; uh, it will not change anything. And so there is no conversation. It's just about stating, uh, uh, yeah, let's say. Um, in advance, take positions and then see where you where you get. Yeah, uh, I think that's not uh, that's not the right way uh, to go. Uh, and I think a lot of conversations and a lot of trust is needed uh, to make that happen. So therefore, I think sandboxes, regulatory sandboxes, are very important because that gives co- uh, companies uh, the opportunity and also governments to speak out what they really think without uh, uh, yeah, having co- direct consequences. Yeah? Because companies, if they say something that might harm their business, even though they think it is so, uh, they will not do it because they say everything we say in public that might be used sometime at some place. Uh, so they are very careful about that. And that's, that's the whole ecosystem, how it works, how it works today. Of course, um, uh, every company states that that's not the case, yeah? but uh, if you look at the at the high level, there are always those those camps. And if you work with a lot of companies in the World Economic Forum, you probably will will see the same. So, I was part of an expert group of the European Commission uh, on a ba- big uh, business to government data sharing for public interest, which has a group of uh, statistics office uh, companies, uh, public administrations. Uh, in order to try to have this conversation and come up with a recommendation, which is now included in the in the European Data Strategy and the Data Act, uh, which will be uh, released uh, soon, uh, but very tough, uh, very tough conversations. And because we were invited on personal title and not as a company representative, uh, I think we could have uh, conversations that you usually don't have. So I think it, it is very important. Uh, to have those kinds of conversations because otherwise it will, one will pull to the other end, the other to the other end. And then at some point there will be a decision, which is either uh, the the sort, how do you say that? Uh, The, the, I don't remember the name, but any arbitrary decision, yeah? Or or it is a, uh, it's too much negotiated uh, without talking about, uh, about the matter. Uh, and then this technology is quite uh, is quite new in its application and its scale. Yeah? And I think for some things to regulate, it's just too early to regulate because you don't know how it works. I mean, one of the regulations is about this explainability. Yeah? Now, you can't say that everything has to be explainable, as I just explained, because there are some things that's not needed and uh, to be explainable and you have to start somewhere so start with the big impact yeah and and that's why that the european commission have those eight areas of high impact of high risk and their explainability is important because you impact impact people's life but not everything has to be explainable and there are so many things explainable in real life uh, inexplainable in real life and we all live with it uh even in high-risk areas. Yeah? If you don't get a mortgage, well, they didn't give me the mortgage. Why? Well, I don't know. 
You're so right. And it's so helpful that you break down the theoretical into practical examples that we can relate to and understand. And I noticed a similar approach in in how you deal with your ethics online. Uh, For instance, your publication of Telefonica's approach to responsible use of AI. And you have principles, um, which any smart company dealing in AI should, uh, on fair AI, transparent, explainable, these principles that you've just mentioned. Um, But it's also clear you've given a lot of thought on how to operationalize these principles, which is uh, such an important piece of the puzzle. It's as hard as it is to establish those guiding principles, operationalizing it is everything. We'd love to give uh, our listeners some insight into how you went about operationalizing those big, important principles. Uh, What are some lessons learned that you can share with them or some key pieces that you think they must grapple with or include when operationalizing their commitment to responsible AI practices. Okay, well, that gives a whole, it gives um, a whole new discussion. Yeah, it's it's also a big one. Yeah, so when when we launched, indeed, we launched our principles in two thousand eighteen. Um, and uh, indeed, it was a big step. It required a lot of uh, collaboration internally in the companies because you have to align a lot of different interests. But we took the approach that it's more important to make a statement and then later you try to live up to that statement rather than making a statement that you're already sure that you can commit to. Yeah? There are many companies that have that approach and they take years to get the principles out, if, if at all. So we did it the other way. We just set high standards for ourselves. And so okay, now we have to live uh, to, make them, to make them true. So what we did is we did, uh, apart from the principles, we have four other ingredients that we worked on. One is training and awareness. So this is an online course on AI ethics, uh, explaining the principles, what you have to do. It's about uh, questionnaires. So people uh, need to ask the right questions when they uh, want to uh, buy or develop or launch a product that includes AI. And those questions are related to our principles. So every principle has a few questions. I think we have like, we have five principles. I think we have like 14 questions. It's really not a lot, but those are the essential questions related to AI. Uh, Most of the privacy part and the security part we leave out because we already have procedures and rules in the company. So we don't want to duplicate and we focus mostly on transparency, explainability uh, and on fairness and uh, human centricness and on working with third parties. Um, So you have the principles, you have training and awareness, you have a questionnaire. Uh, So uh, what we first thing we did, we build a questionnaire and uh, we started with one operation and every single product that goes to the process of being designed and whatever bought uh, has to fill in this questionnaire. Yeah? Uh, and that makes them think about the potential negative impacts of, of their thing. One of the lessons learned is that this is not only AI ethics. So we have a whole responsibility by design uh, framework that includes climate change, fair supply chain, uh, human rights and accessibility and, and reputation. Yeah, So that is a whole package of things that every product that we build needs to consider those those questions. Yeah? Uh, and then, of course, what you need, it's the third, the fourth ingredient is tools. 
because some of the questions you cannot answer just by knowing things. You have to test. Eh? Do you have sensitive, is there correlation between sensible variables and other variables? So if you don't test them, you don't know if your data has bias. Um, so tools are also very important. If you need to, if you have important decisions, you have a deep learning algorithm with this black box, you need tools to open that, open up that black box. Yeah? So tools is another thing. And the last part, and not the least one, is the governance model. Yeah? So who is responsible uh, for what? And so the governance model is actually quite complex. And so what we are doing now is we're running uh, kind of four or five pilots in different business units with a particular government governance models model just to test how it works before we deploy it all, all, all everywhere. It's a kind of a regulatory sandbox. Yeah, so you you do it in a, in a few areas in different areas you you can contrast. Yeah? And so that implies that uh, that uh, we select a few areas where they have products. They need to go through the questionnaire. Uh, there are there's a new role that we identify. It's called the responsible AI champion. That is the the go to person in the business unit that can answer any question. Yeah, so if a product manager fills in the questionnaire about the product, uh, the this, this rate champion and the product manager, they get the result of the questionnaire that has a risk score of potential damage and it has an ethics score regarding our principles. And then they, if they don't agree or if there is a discussion uh, or they actually do agree, but the score is not high enough on the ethics side, then it goes to a ethics committee, an AI ethics committee. Yeah? So it's very important to understand that this is a problem-based uh, governance model. It's not about a permission-based uh, government. It's not about, I want to do this with AI, am I allowed to do it? No. You do it, you think about potential consequences, and if there is a, a disagreement in the team, or the score is not enough, then it goes up to an ethics committee, which is not a, uh, it's not a matter of having the highest position in the company to be in that committee. It's about having most knowledge about the subject. Yeah? So it's a mix of AI people, of privacy and data people, a compliance and sustainability. That's the basic, uh, the basic groups or persons. And then on demand, you can have more people. It's about security. Then it's somebody for security. Is it about IT? Is it about human resources? So, but that's the basis. And then this group has to discuss. Yeah? One is the leader and has to discuss, well, is this, can we do this or not? We see a lot of things, simple things with gender. Yeah? So if you have a gender variable in your model and you do some recommendation and it turns out that the gender, being a woman or a man, influences in what thing you recommend to people, well, is that okay or not? That's a difficult question. Eh? Uh, well, of course, well, if in extreme case, all women, I will recommend an iPhone. All men, I will reckon, uh, recommend an, an Android phone. Uh, that's a kind of discrimination. Eh? But is that allowed or not? So those things that go to the ethics committee, and, uh, and through it. I don't think even there are right and wrong answers. Yeah? The important thing is to think about it and to, to think about the potential consequences. Then whatever, you will launch it and or you will not launch it and things can go wrong, can, things can go right, but at least you've thought about it and if something goes wrong, you know what went wrong yeah? rather than suddenly, oops, what, ha what happened like with the Apple card? Yeah? I don't know if you remember that. 
Um, and then if, if it's really a big problem and you can't solve it, then there is a, a, what we have, a responsible business committee, which is a standard committee for all those responsible business things about supply chain, uh, privacy, whatever. And then it goes up there. But we don't think many things will go up there. Um, and uh, I think th this is, so this is what we are currently, this government is currently what we are piloting. And uh, one of the interesting things is also that's coming out uh, people love it, so they're very enthusiastic. If you tell this, like, oh, look, this is something that the company wants to do. It is purposeful, uh, and in general, people like it. The only thing that we also see is that if you are a product manager, you it feels like, oops, I have to pass an exam. I hope I pass. Yeah? So you see a kind of defensive, uh, defensive attitude uh, in the way that sometimes they try to make things look better than they are. But that's, I think, a cultural thing that we'll, we will overcome because the, in the end, it's not about uh, stopping things. It's about thinking about things before you actually do them. And you can still go ahead eh, uh, if you convince everybody that the balance in the end is positive, but you have to take accountability and you have to take the, uh, you, you have to take the decision explicitly. So I think in the beginning, it's a kind of, uh, th that oops uh, this is something I have to pass otherwise I'm in problems but I think over time people will uh, yeah will will really appreciate this and, and help it helps them as a kind of tool to manage the risks of their uh, of their applications no I'm so glad yeah. we asked that was fascinating <laughs> yes absolutely um, totally fascinating and thank you very much for walking us through it and it'll be so helpful to our audience to hear the step-by-step -step and and also you know that this is a pilot and you don't know all the answers yet but you're you're taking the whole company with you on on this journey um so sadly we're coming to the end of today uh with you and we always close the show with asking our guest this one final question if you had a magic wand to achieve one wish to help us achieve responsible AI, what would you wish for? I would wish that uh, companies uh, would uh, judge their business model against uh, ethical guidelines and uh, social impact, not only against uh, revenues. Sorry for the long answer. But, but also against those things. So, and, and yeah, I think we need to learn to value other things than money and revenues equally important as, uh, as this. So I think that is almost impossible, yeah, on the, on the short term, even midterm. But I think, I think that that is what should uh, change. Yeah? ESG is becoming more and more important. Uh, in Telefonica, our bonus, the bonus of every employee depends for 20% on ESG, on climate, on social, on governments, uh, but it's 20%. It's better than nothing, but 80% is still, still business. Yeah? And I think many companies only look at financial targets. And I think that will... Uh, so it's very hard to have a responsible use of AI and other technologies if in the end success is measured only in one way. Such great points. Uh, 
to that answer and throughout this discussion. I know our listeners will benefit so much from both the theoretical as very well as very practical tips and and, um, steps that they can take. uh, Learn more, obviously, in your books and your articles. So thank you so much, Richard, for taking time today to walk us through your vision of what good AI practices and responsible AI looks like. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I'm really passionate about making those things happen. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me here. Thank you. We can certainly hear that passion behind everything that you've said today and lovely closing about your wish. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Miriam, that was such an interesting time. We say that about all of our speakers, but it's true, actually. We are privileged to have such important insights that our uh, um, speakers share with us that that all of our audience can take and use today. Uh, this isn't this isn't something that they should save for tomorrow. And I think that that's an important thing that Richard Benjamin talked about. That the time is now to get your responsible AI in your company right. And um, I thought it was very interesting that his job actually sort of encompasses the now with responsible AI, but also that foresight, where are we going and why do we need to concentrate on responsible AI so that we can have that better future? Um, I also thought that it was telling because it's something that I talk about all the time. So, of course, it warms my heart for him to say that Um, you might have 10 million and you might think you can just deploy AI, but that's utterly the wrong approach. You have to have this organizational change. You have to have a responsible AI strategy. And um, if we could get that, just that one thing over from this conversation, that would be a very pleasing message. But I think there are other wonderful things that we can take away from this. I thought it was really interesting because he said, well, we're just going to use the the EU AI Act in the same way as we use GDPR. And I think that's interesting because, you know, we've been thinking, will it have the same impact across the world as GDPR? And that's sort of a tell in that direction, I think. Um, I also thought it was really interesting when he said that because they were all invited to a meeting in their personal capacities rather than their company capacities, they were actually more able to talk and get things done. Um, I I think that for anybody like you who are convening the people, that might be a really good tip um, for us getting, being able to get to the actual um, piece of the knowledge that we need. And then, you know, to round off, just the fantastic operational ideas as he talked us through every layer of what Telefonica is piloting in responsible use and how they how they build that responsible use program. I'm sure you've got lots more insights, but yeah, thrilling. 
to really? hear that. Yeah, I agree with you, Kay. I think, as you said, I mean, each of our guests presents so many thoughtful insights into how they go about this really important work that we can learn from. And, and I think Richard in particular had so many gems. And so I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk about them with you so that I can make sure to digest each of them. Um, you know, first of all, I think it, it really, a lot of credit is due uh, for the fact that they were aspirational in their uh, approach to responsible AI. So instead of, of saying, of a very lurely document, like the type that we would have drafted in the past, uh, he was uh, took a different approach and they said, what do we want to achieve? What do we hope we can live up to and then find a way to get there? I think that takes a lot of guts. Um, and I, I think that it, it should be really, they, they should get a lot of credit for doing something that um, is a little out of the ordinary and um, that hopefully will put them in a much better posture than if they only stuck to the basics of what they knew they could achieve today. Um, I think you can also see that in the comment he made just offhand at the end, that 20% of bonuses are now tied to ESG. There is nothing more important in achieving a culture, which we talk about all the time, uh, and achieving results and accountability. Uh, again, uh, basic tenets of responsible AI. Uh, if you're not putting your money where your mouth is, if you're not holding employees both accountable and if they're not the beneficiary. So uh, what a thoughtful way to create incentives, um, putting it right in employees' uh, bonuses and their bottom lines. Um, and then the deep thought he's given that I think would be a roadmap for everyone to follow who has is just starting off on this journey or is thinking about this journey, about making sure that they have a responsible AI framework in place. They set the principles. That's hard enough deciding what they're going to be. But you have some really good models out there now to pull from and can really jumpstart that process. The training. Um, obviously, we have our own through Equal AI that is available, and and uh, we'll we'll repeat the training session for others to join. But um, in house is another option, and um, and how important that they are making sure to train people on these big principles in their operationalizing of the of the of the concepts. The questionnaires. It's great that they break it down. Um, each of the each of the uh, principles is in a interactive format, so someone can digest it and make sure that they are seeing it, and understanding it in the way that the company intends. The tools, obviously, a conversation we could have an entire podcast on the tools to help support this conversation and this uh, culture, this responsible AI goal, uh, and the governance model. Um, so each piece of those so inherently important on their own and the fact that they've taken them all on is uh, really laudable. And I really look forward to seeing what how their pilots and their own internal regulatory sandbox plays out. And, and so obviously something we'll all be able to learn from in their journey. Super. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing how, how it all works out. And um, as with everybody who's trying this, really supportive and hopeful that it does work out great for them. Yes, cheers to that. Well, Kay, it's been a delight as always. I can't wait for our next conversation. See you soon. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. 
To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 